Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast. Episode 55, Peace in Our Time. Before we get started this week, just a quick heads up. I mentioned a few weeks back that I'll be going to China this summer, and now the moment has arrived. Next week, I'll be leaving the West Coast for fabulous Suzhou, near Shanghai. So, first of all, if any of you plan to be in the People's Republic this summer, drop me a line, send me an email. I'd love to meet some fans while I'm there. Second of all, what does this mean for the show? Well, the schedule will be as follows. There will be no new episode on June 7th, since I will be in transit and unable to record one. There will be new episodes on June 14th, 21st, 28th, and July 5th, recorded by yours truly, And then we will have some guest episodes. On the 12th and 19th, a friend of mine from graduate school by the name of Sam Tominski will be coming to you to talk about Japanese social movements, as well as, I believe, the history of NHK. On the 26th, we will have a listener, Matt Silverman, who will be coming in to talk about the history of Japanese cuisine. Finally, the weekend of August 2nd, there will be no new episode, as I'll be getting back in town just around then and trying to get everything reorganized. From that point on, we will resume normal service, and thankfully it looks like we won't have another major disruption in our schedule like this until I have to take my qualifying exams about a year from now. Anyway, let's get on with the show. This week, I want to talk to you about an idea that has, arguably, done more to shape the character of Japan since the 1940s than really any other. It can be thought of as uniquely idealistic or pragmatic and a practical expansion of Japan's new role in the world. It's also a very timely one. I've been thinking about doing this episode for a while, but I kept putting it off. As we'll discuss at the end of the episode, recent events have conspired to have me move it up. Like many of the idealistic moments of the 20th century, it has its roots in the years after World War II. When the armistice ending that war was signed on November 11, 1918, some 16 million civilians and soldiers had died and a further 20 million had been wounded. Europe lay in ruins, and most of the rest of the world had been, in some way or another, engaged in the conflict. The incredible scope of the war lay the groundwork for a new wave of pacifism which swept the world. One origin of this wave was the exposure to the horrors of war. The idea that war was a great and glorious adventure lost much of its currency in the mass slaughters of battlefields like Ypres and Verdun. Part of it was the fault of the very governments which had fought the war. They had to spur their societies to tremendous sacrifice, and in the process the rhetoric of war was elevated from being about national interest to being for the very soul of civilization and humanity itself. In few countries was this more pronounced than the United States. America had come into the war only later on, and the mass of American society seemed set against an intervention designed to prop up the old empires of Europe. Woodrow Wilson, the American president, was thus forced to make the case for war idealistically and ideologically. He is best known for referring to the war as, quote, the war to end all wars, and as a war to make the world safe for democracy and it is no accident that Wilson is often credited as the man who first started tinging American foreign policy with ideas about morality and global responsibility. 
Very few other leaders took this seriously, of course. David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, is said to have remarked of the rhetoric that, quote, this war, like the next war, will be the war to end all wars. One of his subordinates, Earl Wavell, a British field marshal, is said to have quipped about the harsh terms of the Versailles Treaty at the end of the war that, quote, after the war to end war, they seem to be in Paris making the peace that will end peace. Still, some idealists, particularly in the United States, really embraced the idea that free trade and peaceful competition could really end war. And it was in this spirit that, in 1928, France and the United States put forth what is known as the Paris Pact, or the Kellogg-Briand Pact, after the American Secretary of State Frank Kellogg and the French Foreign Minister Aristide Briand. The idea of the treaty was to get states to agree that they would use peaceful means, rather than war, to settle their future disputes. Once everyone signed the treaty, so the theory went, war would be over, and the triumph of idealism would be secure. The First World War would really be the war to end all wars. The original signatories were Germany, the U.S., and France, but many other countries, though not all, followed suit. Thanks, Mexico! Japan, in fact, was one of the signatories, though the decision by Prime Minister Tanaka Gichi to sign the treaty was fiercely debated by the military. The fact that Japan had signed the treaty would later be used as evidence in the charges of crimes against the peace leveled against the Japanese leadership after World War II. Then, of course, came the 1930s and war. The grand dreams of a world society free of war and a permanent peace came crashing down in the most devastating conflict in human history by basically any standard. Japan was, as we know, occupied at the end of the conflict. An American regime with the goal of reworking the entire society from the ground up was put in place. None of the American goals, however, were quite as grandiose as the one we're going to talk about today, the demilitarization of an entire state. The origins of the decision to demilitarize Japan are somewhat murky. There had been discussions of demilitarization even during the wartime planning for the occupation. Japan, so the feeling went, was so socially militarized that disarmament was necessary to guarantee peace in Asia. Some Japanese, for their part, wanted disarmament as well, though for very different reasons. They felt a military was too expensive for the now ruinously poor nation to pay for. The best example of this is probably Okita Saburo, the economist with a vision for Japan, who was one of the leading figures of this movement. Way back in episode 19, we mentioned a recollection by a friend in his diary after meeting Okita in the bombed-out ruins of a Tokyo university. Quote, Okita made himself comfortable and we spoke for a long time. He did not think that a defeated Japan would be allowed to rearm at all, but this would probably be a blessing in disguise. I completely agreed with what he said. I will actually be happy if rearmament is completely prohibited. An army in uniform is not the only sort of army. Scientific technology and fighting spirit under a business suit will be our underground army. For his part, the head of the occupation, General Douglas MacArthur of the United States, wrote in his memoirs that the Prime Minister at the beginning of the occupation, Shidehara Kijiro, suggested the idea. Shidehara felt that the Japanese people would no longer be willing to trust any sort of military establishment or support war at all, so having a military was pointless. Not everyone agrees with this, though, 
and some point to the government section of the occupation, responsible for shaping Japan's new governmental infrastructure as the source of the idea. Either way, when Douglas MacArthur gave orders to have the occupation draft a new constitution for Japan in February 1946, one of the directions he gave was that the new constitution include a section renouncing war for any purpose whatsoever. The text that resulted was the ninth article of the new constitution, which went into effect in May 1947. It reads, quote, Article 9. Aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. To accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained, and the right of the belligerency of the state, which is to say the right of a state to fight and declare wars, will not be recognized. Now, at this juncture, I want to emphasize that the idea of not only rewriting another country's constitution, but doing so in such a way as to permanently disarm that country, is an idea utterly without precedent in modern history. The Japanese, however, took it surprisingly well. The vast majority of the population was hugely disenchanted with the national military, and Article 9 seemed poised to break the power of the institution which was blamed for the disaster of the war. The Japanese left, especially its rapidly growing socialist and communist wings, were strongly in favor of disarmament. The socialists, because of a humanistic internationalism which pervaded the movement, the communists for the same reason, and also because militaries, in the end, can be deployed against the People's Revolution. Meanwhile, the centralist big-business conservatives under Okita Saburo and the new prime minister, Yoshida Shigeru, were also in favor of Article 9, at least in the short term. They wanted to avoid spending money to rearm the country. Armies, after all, are expensive and don't pay back the money you put into them in the way that, say, infrastructure or education spending does. Eventually, Yoshida at least was interested in amending the Constitution to remove Article 9 and normalize Japan's military, but not until the country was economically strong again. Only the hardline conservatives led by a former bureaucrat and an indicted but not convicted war criminal named Kishinobusuke, resisted Article 9. However, almost as soon as it was passed, the tide began to turn against Article 9. As the Cold War heated up, attitudes in Washington, D.C. shifted from disarming Japan to turning it into an ally in the new strategy of containment. Visits undertaken by U.S. diplomats George Kennan in 1948 and John Foster Dulles in 1950, were undertaken to pressure the Japanese into a closer security relationship with the United States. Those of you who know your American history will know that George Kennan was American's chief specialist on the Soviet Union and author of the containment strategy which defined the U.S. plan for most of the Cold War. Dulles, meanwhile, was a well-known American diplomat and the senator from New York. He was much more of a hawk than Kennan, and was sent to bully Japan into rearmament and an alliance with the U.S. Opposing these men was Yoshida Shigeru, who stood firm to his position against rearmament. He was not an ideological pacifist, but he was convinced that rearmament would result in Japan being bogged down in America's expensive wars against communism. He wasn't wrong, either, 
since America's eastern allies, such as Thailand, South Korea, and the Philippines, did end up being strong-armed into supporting such brilliant adventures as America's war in Vietnam. Article 9 was a good shield behind which Yoshida could hide. After all, the Americans had given Japan its new constitution and they could hardly fault him for obeying it. He also made sure that public support for his position was very evident. Yoshida's personal physician had connections to the Japan Socialist Party. Whenever Dulles came into Tokyo for negotiations, Yoshida would leak the fact of his arrival to his doctor, and thus to the Socialists, ensuring that the Americans would be greeted by massive rallies for Article 9 and against rearmament. In the end, Dulles caved, and reached an agreement with Yoshida in part. Article 9 would stand, and the U.S. would unilaterally guarantee Japan's security. In exchange, Japan would have to develop at least some minimal self-defense force, the embryonic form of the modern Zietai, or self-defense forces, but their scope could be drastically limited. America would also be allowed to maintain bases in Japan, and use them even without Japanese approval, as well as retain control of Okinawa. Yoshida agreed to these terms, and on September 8, 1951, signed both the Treaty of San Francisco, formally ending World War II, and the U.S.-Japan Mutual Security Treaty. Strictly speaking, the rebuilding of the SDF and the Security Treaty are, of course, violations of Article 9, so how did Yoshida justify them? Well, he did what anyone forced to get around the law does. He hired some lawyers. Specifically, he established what is known as the Naikakuhoseikyoku, or the Cabinet Legal Bureau, a group of dedicated lawyers whose job it was, depending on your perspective, either to provide helpful legal advice to the sitting prime minister, or to use legalese to get around the law. Specifically, their rather brilliant legal verdict was that defense potential was different from war potential, thus Japan could have defense forces, just not a regular military. Yoshida's compromise infuriated the Japanese left. They felt he'd compromised the very spirit of the new law. The right, under Kishi Nobusuke and the other pro-rearmament Japanese, was more tolerant of the move and eventually joined Yoshida to form the Liberal Democratic Party in 1955. However, Yoshida was unwilling to take further steps to rearm, and as a result, in 1957, Kishi launched an internal coup inside the party which took down Yoshida and put his faction in control of the new party. Kishi himself became prime minister. Once in office, Kishi began trying to push things even farther, though the socialists in the Diet, as well as the remaining pro-Yoshida MPs in the Liberal Democratic Party, obstructed him. In 1960, the tensions over his moves for rearmament boiled over as he attempted to revise the Mutual Security Treaty. Kishi was trying to rewrite the treaty to make it more equal, so that, for example, the Americans would have to at least let the Japanese know what they were planning to do, before they started using the bases they had on Japan. The left, however, was not terribly interested in the fact that he was trying to make a more equal treaty. They just saw him bringing the security issue up again and flouting Article 9. The revision to the treaty was expected to pass without issue, and did, in fact, in the United States. However, when it came to Japan, thousands of protesters flooded the streets some of whom almost toppled the car of the American press secretary sent in to prepare for the joint signing ceremony, which was supposed to include a visit by then-President Dwight Eisenhower. 
The treaty is known in Japanese as the Anpol Joyaku, or Security Treaty, so the riots surrounding its revision and renewal are known as the Anpo Riots. Inside the Diet, fist fights broke out between Diet members on various sides of the issue, and the Speaker of the Diet had to be protected by a physical barrier of MPs to prevent the Socialists from going in physically and shutting the session down. The treaty did pass, but in its aftermath it was clear that the public was no longer willing to tolerate Kishi's attempt to strong-arm the country into rearmament. He resigned in disgrace. There's actually some period newsreel footage of the riots. I'll put them up on the website with this episode so you can check them out. Yoshida at this point was too old to serve openly. He would die six years later. Instead, he arranged for another member of his faction to become prime minister, a disciple of his named Ikeda Hayato. It was here that Article 9 took on its more permanent character. Ikeda was, as you might remember from our earlier episodes, a pioneer of Japan's focus on domestic growth above all else. In Ikeda's new strategy for Article 9, Article 9 and Japan's pacifist stance became permanent fixtures of Japanese politics. In combination with the American alliance, it would keep defense expenditures low, keep Japan out of international affairs, and enable it to focus on economics. This approach was solidified under his successor, Sato Esaku, whose run in office from 1964 to 1972 ties him with Ito Hirobumi for the longest-serving prime minister in Japanese history at eight years apiece. Sato Esaku would become the face of Japanese pacifism. He formalized policies regarding nuclear non-proliferation, prohibition of weapon exports, the demilitarization of space, and extremely low expenditures for the self-defense forces, capped at 1% of the national GDP per year, which is still, roughly speaking, the standard for the SDF. The weapons export ban was lifted just this past year. Every other one of these policies remains in place. Sato is also the one who formalized Japan's prohibition against what's called collective self-defense, the idea that an attack against one state is an attack against all of its allies. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in Europe, is the best example of this kind of idea. The right to collective self-defense is guaranteed to all nations under the United Nations Charter. Sato's government, however, declared that Article 9 meant that Japan had the right to collective self-defense, but could not exercise it and would stay out of wars unless it was directly attacked itself. Sato became the first Japanese prime minister in history to pick up a Nobel Peace Prize, specifically for his policies related to nuclear non-proliferation and not allowing nuclear weapons in Japanese ports. Ironically, we now know that he was fully aware that the United States was moving ships with nuclear weapons through Japanese ports, and didn't object because he felt it would undermine the security relationship. Funnily enough, Sato was actually the brother of Kishi Nobusuke. Kishi had been adopted by another family, but the two were by blood siblings. The 1970s and 1980s were the heyday of the popularity of Article 9, but in the 1990s things began to change. The first blow to the prestige of Article 9 was the basic collapse of Japan's left. As we've discussed, in 1993, anger at the failure of the LDP to fix the issues relating to the 1991 crash resulted in, for the first time since 1955, an opposition coalition led by the socialists coming into power. The socialists came to power promising to implement the agenda they had promised for decades, but swiftly proved unable to realize the vision of demolishing the self-defense forces. 
public dislike of the failures of the socialists, in particular their bungled handling of the 1995 Kobe earthquake, discredited their platform, and they were crushed in the polls. The Japan Socialist Party actually collapsed completely and fell apart, and the Japanese left went into hibernation. It would come back with a vengeance in 2009 to kick the LDP out of office yet again. However, by 2012, faced with yet another natural disaster, this time the 311 earthquake and tsunami, the resurgent Japan Democratic Party would also find itself in a tailspin, and it too would be kicked out of office. In addition, the first Persian Gulf War in 1991 was a humiliation for Japan. Asked for troops to help throw Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, the Japanese responded that Article 9 meant that help could not be sent. Instead, it offered to finance the campaign to the tune of some $13 billion. The U.S. took the money, it's how we got away with paying so little for the war, but the Japanese government was castigated for its irresponsible behavior and its unwillingness to get in and help stabilize the world on the global stage. That kind of behavior was acceptable, perhaps, for an economically weak power like Japan had been in the 50s, but not for the world's second biggest economy. The Japanese government, sensitive to the criticism that it was not contributing what a great power was supposed to contribute, changed the rules around Article 9 for the first time in decades. The new International Peace Cooperation Law, passed in 1992, enabled Japanese troops to engage in global peacekeeping operations sanctioned by the UN. Their first deployment was to Cambodia, which in the wake of the infamous Khmer Rouge was now something of a ruined state. The Japanese troops were carefully protected and avoided exposure to overt risk. I spoke to one defense ministry official about this several years later, and he recalled to me that if a single Japanese soldier had died on that mission, it would have been the end of the whole thing. None of them did, though, and Japanese soldiers had their first successful deployment abroad since 1945. The leadership of the enigmatic Prime Minister Koizumi Junichiro, he of the fabulous Elvis haircut, pushed things even further. As Japanese troops actually joined the U.S. coalition in the Second Iraq War, and Japanese support ships supported the American attack on Afghanistan. However, supporting America's wars was not very domestically popular, and it did contribute to the rise of the DPJ, the revived leftist party, the Democratic Party of Japan, in 2009. However, when the DPJ did get back into power, they proved to have little idea of how to run the country, and the DPJ's suggestion that Article 9 could persist unmodified seemed rather weak in the wake of the September 2010 incidents surrounding the Senkaku Islands. A Chinese ship violated Japanese waters around the island, and in the wake of the incident, anti-Japanese riots and a temporary shutdown of rare earth exports to Japan shook Japanese confidence in the security of their position vis-a-vis -vis China. At the same time, the tremendous success of both the self-defense forces and the American Navy in relief efforts during the 311 tsunami hugely increased their popularity with the Japanese people. And then, of course, we get to Japan's current prime minister, Abe Shinzo. Abe is a very interesting man, you see. His mother's name was Kishi Yoko and his grandfather featured very prominently earlier on in this episode, Kishinobusuke. Abe enjoyed a brief run as prime minister from 2005 to 2006, but lost his leading position very quickly. He focused on a desire to repeal Article 9 when most people were more concerned about the Japanese economy, undercutting his support both in society and in the party. 
However, on his return to power in December 2012, he was much smarter about his policies. He focused first on economic stimulus, referred to by his supporters and opponents both, as Abenomics, and in doing so, he has solidified his popularity. In addition, the continued, and I don't want to sound too judgmental here, gross stupidity of the Chinese government in its handling of the Senkakus and the Japanese has further undercut the position of the more pacifist elements of the Japanese left. In fact, on May 19th of this very year, a team of legal experts assembled by the Prime Minister announced a new interpretation of Article 9 that Japan is allowed to engage in collective self-defense. The SDF, meanwhile, is regearing and expanding its capabilities, for example, commissioning a new line of Izumo-class destroyers just this past year. In 2012, I had the chance to meet with members of Japan's Ministries of Defense and Foreign Affairs, and spoke with them about these rearmament efforts. I remember being astonished by their positions when I mentioned that, compared to the 80s or 90s, the changes being made to the position of the JSDF were a revolution in Japan's military affairs. They said to a man that it was not fast enough. One even said that Article 9 was holding Japan back. This is something, of course, that you would never hear someone in the government say in the 70s or 80s. Just this past week, I had the good fortune to meet Kito Okashinichi, one of the people in charge of the panel assembled by Abe to reinterpret Article 9, as well as Japan's former ambassador to the United Nations. When he spoke on the issue of Article 9 and Japanese foreign relations, he too was extremely critical. The growing feeling is that Japan has to take responsibility for its own defense, become a normal nation, and help defend the American-backed order from which it has benefited for so very long. Things remain very divided, to be sure. The new interpretation of collective self-defense that Dr. Kitaoka, among others, offered, for example, was harshly criticized by the more left-leaning Japanese newspapers like the Asahi and Mainichi Shimbun, and staunchly supported by the more right-leaning ones like the Yomiuri and Nikkei Shimbun. Things are not close to resolving themselves and probably will not be until there is a constitutional referendum on the issue. That takes a tremendous amount of popular support, so that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. So where does this all leave the grand dream of Article 9 and a disarmed and pacifistic nation? Article 9 was an idealistic decision rooted in the post-World War II belief in an end to war and spurred on in the short term by a great worldwide optimism in the wake of that terrible war. However, the people who have kept Article 9 alive for so long have, by and large, done so because they felt it was pragmatic, not because they really believed in a world without war. It's unlikely that Article 9 would have lasted as long as it has, without the external circumstance of the U.S. alliance allowing Japan to offload much of the cost of its defense. Now, the rise of China and a new generation less afraid of the military establishment give you the impression that Article 9's days might be numbered, though of course it's impossible to be sure. Predicting the future is a dangerous game, but it seems at this point that peace will not be here in our time. Japan's days as a model of global pacifism may soon be over. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode, or any other episode, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. 
Well, I'm in China, you will not be able to reach me through the Facebook page. Instead, either contact me through WordPress or send me an email at ijmeyer at uw.edu. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks' time to discuss Japan's great tea master, Sen no Rikyu. Oh.